Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny B. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 50,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Yor and g'day. My name's Craig Sisterson, and you're listening to the wonderful Words and Nerds podcast. We're with our wonderful host, Danny V. I am a guest host today. This is Kiwi Craig's World of Crime, where we explore crime fiction from all around the world. And boy, oh boy, do I have a wonderful guest for us today. We have the wonderful Renee. That's right, Renee, just one name, like Madonna or Elvis, that's all you need. You are going to learn so much about this wonderful writer, this wonderful storyteller over the next little while today. But Renee is one of the writing rangatira of New Zealand. She is a true wahini tower, a leader in the New Zealand storytelling community. She wrote her first crime novel at 89 years old after 40 years of telling drama, for the stage and novels and memoir and lots of other things. She's got her second crime novel coming out now, which is called Blood Matters. We're going to be talking about that today, of course, because we love crime fiction, but we're also going to be learning lots more about Renee's career and all the things she's been doing. Kiora and Hiramaya, Renee. Kiora, Kiora. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here. Fantastic. So let's um let's talk a little bit about the crime fiction first, and then we'll introduce viewers to kind of uh, and listeners how you got here and in terms of writing and creativity and storytelling and all you've done for the New Zealand community over the years. But what is it that you love about crime fiction, and what made you want to write your first crime novel when you were eighty nine years old? I think I well I've always liked it. I've been reading mm. it since I was about ten, and mm. I. I've just always liked it. I read um, somewhere in a novel, I think it was a Dorothy L. Sayers novel, um, where um, Harriet and Peter Whimsey are talking about the value, or not, of crime novels. And their take, her take on it, or his, I think it was, um, is that we present a world where a, a kind of an ideal world, the world people might hope it might be, where evildoers are punished. Mm. Quite often in real life they're not. And um, because my taste doesn't run to very violent sorts of crime in my reading, I don't go for that in the writing either. And I set, I think I set things more around character and the life of a village, a town in, in Aotearoa. And, and that also gives the, the story depth, I think. Mm. You get to know the people over time. Oh, and Blood Matters is a wonderful book. I had the pleasure of reading it over the last week or two here in New Zealand. It's fantastic. It's the story of uh, Puti Darrell, who lives in a small town called Porahiwi, 
and she runs a secondhand bookshop called Mainly Crime, which is absolutely delightful. And I wish there was a bookshop like that in the town I lived in. And of course, there is a death or two, and there's some investigations and some sleuthing. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but it's a really wonderful read. And it definitely felt to me, Renee, like a modern take on a classic golden age mystery. It felt very New Zealand. It felt very modern. It didn't feel old fashioned. You deal with some issues that Nio Marsh and Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers probably wouldn't have dealt with at the time, yeah. even, even though they were amazing women for their time. Uh, but So it definitely doesn't feel old-fashioned, but it does have that kind of timeless feel of a Golden Age mystery to me. I really love that. And was that a tone you were going for? Yeah, yeah. I just wanted, um, well, and, have, and the second-hand bookshop, um, it's a very... Um, it's very well known to me the uh, the way to run it and all that sort of thing because I worked in one a few uh, many years ago and um, it just seemed a way of talking about the the history and development of crime fiction. I mean, I still like some of the old um, ones I don't bother with, but some of them I still do. I mean, mm. they're absolutely mistresses of of structure. Mm. And, and how to tell a story. And so I admire that immensely. And I know when I worked in the bookshop that they were, they were still popular. People mm. liked them. I, I guess in a way, I think they liked them because of the comfort. They yeah. like to reread them, but they know how they end. So there's nothing surprising, but they buy them and like to read them. And perhaps that, I'm not sure why, I guess... I reread Sayers' Gordy Knight every mm. now and again, and I read it because I think it's a good novel and it presents, well, it presented to me when I was a kid, an ideal um, arrangement between men and women where it was equal and mm. you, could, you could be married and still do what you wanted to do. You didn't just subsume yourself into being a wife and mother. So that was an interesting kind of idea to a a girl of about 11 I was, I think. and But I think somehow they present this, it's like looking back at a play that was written in the 30s or 40s or something, and it does take you back to the time. And there's a certain comfort, although there's a certain kind of take that I think, you know, it's a fairy tale. It was a fairy tale to the people living then. And mm. it's a, it, it was a nice fairy tale, but like it was a fairy tale that supported a, a certain class of people and at the expense of another class of people. So I kind of, as I've got older, I always remember that sort of thing. So I suppose for me, it's like reading, rereading fairy tale or something that I enjoyed when I was a kid. Yeah, there's definitely in the in the kind of classic British crime fiction, there is that sense of class. And yeah. I mean, I feel it even living in the UK now as I do, there's, yeah. an, there's an ingrained sense of class that you don't get as much in Australia and New Zealand kind of thing and, and historically. And and even Dame Nio, who came from New Zealand, had found herself subsumed into that and writing in a similar way. Yeah, things like, yeah. 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 and... Uh, Though she was a pretty individualistic woman herself of the time, as many people have said with some of the other things she did. Uh, 
I was curious, Renee, because this is your second crime novel now. You've also written a wonderful um, short story for our Dark Days Down Under anthology, which is brilliant. And Val McDermott's personally told me it's one of her favourite stories and how much she loved it and stuff, which was great. But I was curious because you're a big fan of crime fiction your entire life, as I am as well. And we know that a lot of the long-term writers, the people that have written multiple books and series, they tend to have a central character, maybe even two or three in different series. Now, this is kind of the second in your Porahiwi Mysteries, but you don't have a central detective as such. So it's like the town is yeah. the the town is the continuation yeah. rather than having a Poirot or Inspector Allen or something like that, That's or true. from modern days, a Harry Bosch or, or a Detective Sam Shepard or something like that. Yes. But what was it for you where you wanted to revisit the town but didn't want to have a singular detective, so to speak? So um, I suppose I just like small towns, and I've, mm. I've not only really known two um, well, <clears throat> and one is Wairau and one is Autaki. But I, I like the, well, the stage is small, isn't it? Hmm. And you can kind of know most things about it. Not everything by any means, but you can know most things. You can walk up the street and people will say hello whether they know you or not. And, and you can go into shops and they're, they're all very pleasant and it's a, a, you know, a pleasure actually to walk out. You can walk around the corner or I can walk around a corner and there's a big church there and a graveyard and you can walk around that. And um, and I like the, the closeness, the proximity of those sort of things I can get to by walking. Mm. And if I was living in a city like I've lived in Dunedin and I've lived in Auckland and Wellington, um, it takes a little bit longer and it's a bit more effort and... There's not the closeness. I mean, I think Dunedin probably comes closest to being a sort of a a big town. Yeah, I yeah like, absolutely. I like, I like Dunedin. Um, but I think there's more in a, in a, if you do if you're writing a story about a small town, you can you can sound real because hmm. it's very likely that you will know all these people. I think there's that, yeah, there's that sense of community. I, I, I grew up in a small town on the top of the South Island, but I've also lived in Auckland and Sydney and London, some large cities. And I think there's a sense of community in small towns. Um, at least people think they know everyone. Part of the twist is often they don't. There's stuff going on behind closed doors as well. Oh, yes. but, the, but there's and So the impact of a death in a small town, the ripple effect seems far larger than in a city. Of course, death anywhere and murder anywhere is... Is terrible, but there's a there's a less of a sense of anonymity or less of a sense of this as a regular occurrence, yeah. and so um, I think that's one of the things I love about small town mysteries is, is that that sense of community, but also you don't know what's going. That, that sense of people thinking they know but they don't always, which is yeah. kind of an interesting to play with. And do you want to tell us a little bit about? Um, blood matters like what was you knew you wanted to set it back in Porahiwi again and what was the kind I of the I also wanted to play around with books I wanted mm. to play around with with titles of books that readers might know and mm. um and I wanted to sort of look at what had happened um not in a very deep way but just look at what had happened to 
crime fiction and why it had taken off when it did. Um, like when Agatha Christie wrote her first novel, I think it was uh, 1921 or something like that, and Britain had just come out of a terrible war and the influenza epidemic. Mm. And I think people, readers, liked the feel and and of reading something that was set in a world that they kind that was kind of like fairy tale, really. Yeah. They, that to them it seemed like that was a picture of how the world should be, and of course but, it only lasted till the Second World War when obviously it. <laughs> was brought home to even the strongest Britain that this was not a perfect world at all and it was going to break up, and of course it did. Mm. People stopped wanting to be servants. You know, yeah. They were trains, they could go to work in factories. They, I mean, it was just the whole thing changed. That's a really interesting observation as well, Renee, because uh, they, that golden age really was the interwar period, as yeah. people call it. I mean, Dame Nio and Agatha Christie, they all wrote beyond the Second World War. Dame Nio wrote right up until yeah. the early 80s with her death. But the, the kind of the, the heyday where the light, the light shone brightest and then it carried on. And the same with Chandler and Hammett and stuff doing the Mean Streets things over in the United States was a yeah. similar period. But I'm curious because some people are saying now that we're having a bit of a resurrection of cosy crime lately, whether it's with Richard Osman and other people and Janice Hallett and others doing some really interesting things and, and not always the dark, gritty urban crime, but that more modern takes. Like with you, with Blood Matters, it's a modern take on the classic yes. kind of crime fiction. And we're also similarly 100 years later going through an incredibly turbulent time with recessions and pandemics and Brexits and all sorts of global things and misinformation. And so it's this incredibly turbulent time. And do you think perhaps that's why yeah. people are returning to cosy crime as opposed to just the dark Quite and likely. noir? Quite yeah. likely. And mm -hmm. I also like uh, writing dialogue and mm. I like I get the feeling that you can draw a character more by what they say and and if you and a reader will know when there's a space between the lines what that means they pick up things other than what the person actually says which is why I like dialogue so much and um, and it's like a you're setting up a scene. Um, that's what the, that's what Agatha Christie did, and people like her. So I suppose for me, it was just a, a, a tip of the hat to that mm. period and the pleasure that they gave me when I was younger, and and bringing it up to a modern take and having dialogue that discussed uh, the probability of them lasting and stuff like that. Mm. And I was thinking as well that you you and Dame Nia, of course, have a shared love of theatre. Yeah. Um, and, and that was always something that made um, Dame Nio's books a little bit different to her contemporaries in The Queens of Crime is that even like her love of theatre and her love of Shakespeare. And I, I kind of felt rightly or wrongly that she was very good at the wider cast, even if the other ones had the more iconic central detective. She was always good at doing the wider cast and she was good with dialogue in that sense. And and I, I definitely 
would presume that's her theatre background. And have, have you felt your theatre background kind of coming into your novel writing in various ways as well? So. Oh, yes, it can't really help it. I mm. think I think it's um, you learn more about how, how, when to use dialogue and how it works and what, what it really um, is very useful for. Like it progresses the story without actually appearing to. Um, and it's a very useful writing tool. Um, I also think that most small towns have a theatre, like mm. Wairoi. Wairoi had a theatre, Ōtaki has a theatre, and they have a, a band of players. And um, so if you're going to write about a small town in New Zealand, you're going to include the theatre as well. And I like that. I just like that people are doing it. I'm not as big a fan of Shakespeare as Niall Marsh was. Mm. But I do see, I mean, I'm talking about The Merchant of Venice in um, for a little bit of um, Blood Matters. And mm. that is a play that we can see over the years has changed for audiences because once, mm. once Shylock was regarded as an absolute villain, yeah. now we can see partly because of the Second World War, we can see how he felt mm. being made to wear a, a scarlet cap, being not being allowed to own a home, not being allowed to do this and that, and being treated and spat on like he was something not quite human. And so we can empathise more now with his position than perhaps we could 50 or so years ago. Mm. Yeah, it's more of a yeah. When I was first growing up, he was he was one of those classic villains of Shakespeare, yes. alongside Richard yes. the Third and Iago and Macbeth and others. Yes. And um, and now he's more of a tragic figure, I would say, yes. you know, kind yes. of thing and stuff. And it, yeah, it is really interesting how how we can revisit things. I want to go back a little bit for the listeners as well. And um, just to give them a little bit of background on yourself, you you kind of broke through, if I'm right, as a as a playwright at about 50 years old was your first uh, first time you were writing or first time a play you wrote was produced, I think, you were approximately 50 years old. What was it that drew you to the theatre rather than writing a novel? And if you don't mind telling us, um, what was it that drew you to do that when you were about 50? Was it you'd always wanted to do it and that just felt like you could or was it something that came to you a little bit later in life? Um, I'd worked in theatre since I was about... 29 in, oh, okay. in theatre. I'd mm. learned a lot. I'd acted and I'd directed and I'd been on committees, read dozens, hundreds of plays. And um, I'd, I chose, I, I had been doing a um, university, you know, I left school when I was 12 to go to mm. work. And um, I had always wanted um to play, I played around with the idea of applying for a degree, but I had nothing to put on the application because they didn't ask for your um, school time. They wanted to know where you went to high school and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I had nothing. So when I signed the application to be a, an extramural student, the only thing that was on it was my um, signature. And to my great surprise, they accepted me. So I started the degree and um, I started writing 
essays and stuff. So, and I had three kids. And so that kept me relatively busy and I was working as well. Um, and so I guess I knew a lot about theatre. I'd done every job. I had done every job in theatre, including cleaning the dunnies. And um, so I guess I came to Auckland. I chose Auckland University because I wanted to see what Auckland theatre was like. Mm. And so I, I wrote a piece for a friend who was doing a drama course, and this was her end of year thing that she was going to get judged on. And so I wrote a play, and, and it was a um, compilation of Gertrude Lawrence and Noel Coward's dialogue and, and songs because she was a singer. And so I got all that ready, and then I got chickenpox, and I couldn't do it, couldn't direct it. So anyway, she got an A, so it didn't really matter. But then I still had this script, and I am of the 30s generation, waste not, want not. And so I sent it to Mercury. And I realise now, of course, it was a, a really crazy thing to do. But at the time, I didn't, I just thought, oh, oh, I won't waste it. I'll just send it. They might say no, but hey, who cares? Mm. At least it's not sitting in the cupboard doing nothing. And so I did. And he, he rang me. And he said they weren't, they couldn't um, use that because their program was full. But did I have anything else? And I said, and I just lied and said, yes, I'm writing a play and I'll be finished it next Friday. And um, he said, could they see it? And I said, oh, sure. So then I sat down and started to write it and I wrote it and they took it. That's wonderful. um, I, I wrote kind of night and day like a mad woman um but it wasn't too bad and and so um what they did was they got a director and a, um another guy who was the writer's friend actually he stood up for me when I needed him to and and so yeah and so setting the table went on um at Mercury and that was a great surprise to audience goers because here were four lesbian women living in Ponsonby just exactly like they were like was happening but they never appeared on stage and the only man in it had about five minutes (laughs) on Mm. stage which was totally the other way around in normal sort of Mm. usually the male actor was the lead and the female actor was there either as his lover or sister or mother or something like that and I wasn't going to have that I I was not going to have that if there were going to be any heroes in my place they were going to be women so and they were Mm -hmm. so yeah so that's how it started and how I started writing plays I wrote lots and lots of reviews feminist reviews that we toured around the country um they were very popular, and I am all very grateful to the crowds who came because they made me realise I could write, that I had something to say. And I was down in Dunedin with Mary um, a couple of years ago, and I was speaking at the library in Dunedin, and 
after the talk was over, a woman came up to me and handed me uh, a little uh, envelope and said she'd come from the West Coast for the talk and that. And so we just talked briefly and I thanked her. And when she'd gone, I opened it up and it was a card and it just said, Dear Renee, thank you for saving my life. And oh, wow. I, I just, uh, you know, it just so touched my heart. So somewhere in those shows that we did around the, the South Island, something I said or something we presented must have touched her in a very mm. deep sort of way. And so, yeah, I... It's it's ama it's amazing, like art and creativity and storytelling, which you know we we do for entertainment is a big part yeah. of it. But it's often so much more than entertainment, and you know people seeing themselves in the stories, even if it's a crime drama or a romance or something Absolutely. that's considered a genre. But it's like and people being able to connect to either the issues or the characters or something going on. And it's really wonderful. Um, I, I want to give the listeners a bit of a sense because your first play came out in the early 80s, 1981, I believe. And so of just how different the times were then because of the idea, like you say, that it was groundbreaking and you've been called a pioneer for how you put woman at the forefront of the theatre. That's one of the nicer ones. <laughs> yeah. But you have, you have uh, for putting yeah. woman at the forefront, for putting um, Takatapue characters at the forefront. I yeah. may have mispronounced yeah. that, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah. um, putting LGBT plus characters at the forefront yeah. and uh, and... Can you give us a sense of what those times were like then and, and how potentially it's changed? We still have road to go, but yeah. how much things have changed over the course of your career? Um, well, for me, it was no big deal. Mm. I left When I left my husband, um, I, I was 50 and I was old enough to deal with things and I, I stepped into a milieu that was uh, just my kind, what I really needed at the time. And that was permission to just be myself. And all the things I'd thought about all my life came back. And they weren't silly. They were really sensible. They were things like saying, why aren't there more women leads in, in theatre? Why does it always have to be run by men? Why... And why, why, why? And so I set out in a, a in a one-person way to change that. And to a large extent, I gave pleasure to a lot of women that had not found any pleasure at all really much in theatre, some of whom had never even been to a theatre show. But when I wrote plays called, like, Asking For It or What Did You Do in the War Mummy and stuff like that, um, they got, you know, full houses because women... Um, flocked to them. No one else had um, done that sort of thing before. And I think the answer to it all, I don't think it was particularly brave of me or that I was in the forefront of anything or anything like that. I just think I was 50 and I just didn't care anymore what people thought. I, I When I left my husband, every friend I had except one crossed me off their Christmas card list and um, and um, and so 
I had myself to deal with and my kids. And yeah, I, it didn't, it seems to me it was the best time. I mean, 50 is a great age to turn. Uh, I just had a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, probably drank too much, certainly <laughs> sang too much, and <laughs> went to parties too much, but it was great. And I wrote and wrote and wrote. And I, I was just in my element. And then I wrote. Um, then something happened that was a pretty much disastrous thing, really. Um, a playwright called Mervyn Thompson was attacked. And it was exact, done exactly like the scene, the first scene in Setting the Table. It copied that. And so I got the blame. I didn't have anything to do with it and I didn't, knew nothing about it. But suddenly I was featured as this villain. And I found that really hard to take, especially in a place like theatre, which I'd regarded as a more or less second home. I could walk mm. in and out of them. I knew where I was and knew what to do. Um, so that was a real shock. And it took me a lot of things, a lot of good things, but I learned a few bad things as well at the time. And so I kind of withdrew a bit. And then a guy rang me to say that he'd heard a children's story of mine on radio and he'd liked it and was I interested in writing another five or six for a collection he was from Heinemann's and um and so I as my usual thing I just said oh okay I'll give it a go and so I did and they took them and and that was Finding Ruth and it did very well and then I wrote, I decided, oh, well, I mean, I've wrote a, written these short stories, I'll write a novel. Um, and so I wrote a novel and they turned it down. And prior to that, one day I'd met Jeff Walker. He came, we, we had a, um, a sale at our house, or, you know, garage sale sort of thing. And um, he came and he was an editor at Penguin in those days. And he came and I think he bought some curtains or something. <laughs> but anyway, he'd seen me and he said um, how much he'd enjoyed the play, which I don't know which play it was. I can't remember now. And he said, if you ever decide to write something longer, like a novel, remember us. And remember Penguin is what he meant. And mm. so because I had this turned down, I, I, I rang him up and I said, this is not about a submission. I'm not submitting a manuscript. What I'm asking you to do is read it and tell me what's wrong with it, and I'll fix it. And um, and so he did, and so I did, and then Penguin took it. So, and which which book was that? That, that one? Um, Willy Nilly, that's called. Oh, okay, and, yeah. Yeah. So that was how writing novels came into um, being, and I got the Robert Burns Fellowship at Otago. And so and the deal with that was I offered to write another play um, in the Wednesday to Come series. And so I did that and um, then went back to writing, really, and to writing novels. And I've been writing them ever since, and also some short stories, but few and far between are the short stories because it's a form 
um, I'm gradually getting aware, more aware of it, but it's a form that's quite hard. And, um, and but I enjoy doing that. So the, the book, the novels are all um, stemming from either things I've overheard or things I've experienced or things that people have told me or developments in our history, like does this make sense to you is about young girls who got pregnant, got pregnant is a good way of putting it, isn't it? Is this something, <laughs> you no know, disease like <laughs> corona or something happened to them? Um, and they were sent up north to very strict church-run hostels and things where they were worked into the ground and then they were made to give up their baby. They were forced to sign the adoption papers. And it's a real blot on our history. Mm. And it doesn't happen now. But I wrote the book and that was very, and still is very, still is read and I get still get um, emails about it or people will stop me in the street and talk about their own experience, um, which the book has um, somehow eased, I guess. I mean, I was in hospital once and... The doctor came to see me about my whatever was wrong with me. I think I had um, some blood infection or something. And she said, are you the writer? And I said, yeah. And she said, I just want to tell you that does this make sense to you? meant such a lot to me. It's the best book I've ever read. Because she said it had happened to her. Mm. It and is she- a kind of... It's a nasty part of New Zealand history and other countries as well, um, you know, Ireland and many others where these kind of things yes, happened yes. too. And it's kind of been hidden away and not talked about that much. And yes. it's wonderful you bring that out. I mean, even in your most recent work, like with Blood Matters, there's you, you touch on sometimes in light ways and sometimes through dialogue or just the sides between the characters, you touch on some pretty kind of serious issues when it comes to, you know, things that happen in families, things that happen behind closed doors. I personally, one of the things I love about crime fiction is it can be a prism into all of life and they can be entertaining stories and they can give us that sense of crossword puzzleness or the thrills. But also I often find crime fiction and genre fiction in general can not teach us about stuff, but expose things to us or, you know, show us things that we might not see. And I don't know how, I'm curious how you feel about this, Renee, but I also think sometimes narrative storytelling and, and fictional storytelling can sometimes do that better than even a really good non-fiction book or article. And I'm saying that as someone who writes thousands of non-fiction articles, but in terms of story gets to the heart of things and people yeah. get it without being, they're not lectured to, they just kind of, it comes through the story. Do you find yourself thinking I, I of that when I, you're writing? Um, I think it's the carelessness mm. of everyday racism that just it, it it defeats me. I cannot understand how people can say can do it without thinking, what am I saying? What am I doing to this child or to this woman or whatever? I can't understand. I mean, one of my granddaughters was in a being in a school photograph and she'd been put in the front row and um, the Pākehā girl next to her said, oh, I'm not standing next to you. You've got too much sun. 
like so careless and so hurtful and well hurtful for the one who received it and I mean that, there's a couple of episodes in the book where that careless sort of talk has no kind of um, potential for the one who says it but for the one who receives it it's remembered like it's just another one of those things and so I've done that in Blood Matters that's another thing as you say about um, crime fiction you can do that sort of thing without making a big drama of it it's, it's a conversation about yeah. books and or about other things or whatever and um, and it's just that carelessness that I find so appalling I think, yeah, I think carelessness is a good way of putting it because it's not even the situation where the person saying those things is intentionally being malicious or mean or nasty and they don't care. It's that they don't even realise they're doing yeah. that. Yeah. It's it's like so systemically built in is just that's the way it is. And I, I'm just sharing personally, and this is not a proud thing, but I know that when I was growing up, there used to be the term having a Maori shower, like when you just like did your underarms and your face in the sink and you didn't have time for a full shower and it was called having a Maori shower and I had Maori friends growing up in Nelson and stuff like that but it was just a term and it wasn't meant in a mean way or a racist way but it is you know yes, kind it of thing. <laughs> it absolutely yeah I'm not it absolutely is but it's just you grew up with it and it was a term and it wasn't yeah. a yeah. It wasn't like an N word or anything, which is blatantly, no, it, no. but it but, still but is. But if we're talking about the N word, mm. those four queens of crime, mm. they used it. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of yeah. Agatha's uh, most famous books has had to be retitled twice because yes. even the even the yes. alternative title wasn't Absolutely. a heck of a lot better yeah. either. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then there were none, as it is now, but for those out there listening in. Yeah. Um, I do love in this book, you've given yourself the opportunity with uh, Pudi and with uh, mainly crime to do some shout outs to the genre. It definitely oh, feel, yes. you, you can feel the love for the crime genre and yeah. not just the, not just the golden age queens. I mean, I think I remember that, yeah, Vanda Simon gets a mention and yeah. Ian Rankin and Val McDermott and some of our great modern writers too. Yeah. So your love for the crime genre does does come through clearly in the book, yeah. I think, which is I really... Couldn't, I couldn't resist um, putting some of my favourites in. And mm. I mean, and because of the it, because of the setting, it was perfectly okay to do so. Like it didn't, they didn't, they don't stand out or anything. They're just part mm. of the, the conversation or the thinking. But it is fun, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, let's talk to the readers a little bit more about what happens in this book. We don't want to give too much away, but to give you a little bit of a sense of it. So Pudi Daryl, sorry, is um, she's kind of a, a single woman, lesbian woman living in a small town of Porahiwi, and she inherits her sister's uh, secondhand bookstore and also kind of the guardianship of a young girl as well. She's estranged from her grandfather due to some racist and other things that have gone on in the past because she had mixed parentage, and then she finds him dead and they obviously something dangerous is going on in the town and then there are more deaths and more other things that we need to worry about a lot of family history a lot of other hidden history comes out as well as some modern 
kind of tension of things going on. It's a wonderful read. I really enjoyed it. You know, this is a four plus star read, people. You really want to get your hands on it. But for you, Renee, what makes a good crime novel? Because you you write crime novels, but you also you've taught crime writing as well. So um I I just think that it has to be like if it's well written. I don't I don't it seems to me there's a segregation between a novel and a crime novel that should not be there. I think they're all novels and one one kind deals with a problem of another sort and uh, other novels deal with a crime and the effects of it on the people um, around, Mm. around the centre of that. And I have no patience whatsoever with people who make that distinction. I mean, something is written well or it's not. Yeah. Absolutely. And that, that's my um, my criterion, I suppose. And like, hey, this is a big fairy. This room, mm. this room, we don't have to have these um, areas that are um, parcelled out between us. We can all live as writers and call ourselves writers, and we can all write novels, and some of them will be about crime. Mm. Or, and some of them will be about something else. And I just have never actually seen And when you think, when I think that one of the books that I've read off and on all my life practically is labelled a crime novel and yet it's, re- in, it's a bit dated but it's very well written and anyone, no one would dare not to say it was a novel as well. Mm. And so I think the distinction is is really out of date and and we should just concentrate on whether a novel is well written and engaging and you know what it's about rather more than trying to put them into um, little separate houses. I mean, I feel the same about um, romantic fiction as well. Mm. Uh, it gets a very bad press amongst the literary people um but i've i've known um and i know writers who write romance and they work as hard and they're very very successful and because they've hit on a particular genre that they like and they're good at and they do like they do write well And, um, I mean, there's the same range of writing well as there is in any other Mm. kind of writing. Uh, Some of them write better than others, of course, but I've never been able to understand why one can't read them all Mm. because of their various pleasures they give you and and they could all be called good. You you know, that's a problem for me. I agree completely, Renee. And I know when I got started into like book reviewing and stuff 13, 14, 15 years ago, that was one of the biggest frustrations for me is that it seemed not not readers so much. Readers and librarians and stuff, they like everything and that's great and they like what they like. But in certain circles, particularly literary circles, whether it was events or whether it was people who did funding or other things, 
there was and and sometimes in the media as well um there was that sense that literary fiction wasn't just a type of writing it was a better type of writing you know kind of thing and but but whenever people talked about it they would compare the booker prize shortlist to just kind of, to just like a popular but not best written version of romance or crime or whatever sci-fi or fantasy or or horror as opposed to realizing that there were this brilliantly written horror novels and this brilliantly written crime novels and this brilliantly written romance and this brilliantly written sci-fi and fantasy and and there's 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 good and great and mediocre and don't no. bother and and don't bother with and all of them yeah. you know, kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. but there, there's this and it does seem to be more in the english-speaking world i think in places like france and that the roman noirs as they call them are considered on the same level as literary fiction in most circles. But I, it does seem to feel, particularly in the Anglophone world, that there's that sense of um, yeah. literary being better. But I am curious too, because um, when we look back, the, the books that are taught to us as literary classics growing up, whether it's Jane Austen or Robert Louis Stevenson or Charles Dickens and others like that, almost all of them, when you look, are actually what would be called popular or genre fiction. Oh, yeah. I mean, like I mean, I it, it, um, Nelson. Yeah. I mean, Jane Eyre is really just Mills and Boone with more words. Yeah. And, and I mean, Jane Austen, isn't that just romance writing, really, yeah. in the end? Of and, 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 you know, Robert Louis Stevenson is thrillers and crime with like Jekyll and Hyde and other things. Yeah. And Dickens was, Dickens was like social novels delving into yeah. the poverty of London and stuff like that. And, and yet, Nowadays, you could, you we could make it also make a claim for Dickens being crime novels too. Some of them, definitely. Yeah, and yeah. I, I've said to friends, and I've had this discussion with other authors as well, is that I honestly believe Shakespeare is around today. What would Shakespeare doing? He would be writing crime crime dramas for Netflix. Is what he would be doing nowadays. <laughs> you know, kind of. Because yeah. half of half of his stuff is crime, and the other half is comedy and romance. Yeah. You know, kind of he would either be writing romantic comedies, or he'd be writing like Luther or The Wire or something and, like and, that, and, and, and lifting other people's work without acknowledging it. Too. Well, that too. <laughs> that's a discussion. <laughs> that's a discussion for another. He was heavily <laughs> heavily inspired by history and other people's work. Yes, yes, yes. He had no qualms well. about body, like. The stage is often littered with bodies. Um, yeah. Seem to be no, it's it's it's, it's absolute Greek tragedy is full of yeah. crime and thrillers and drama. And but I mean, I, that's very easy, isn't it? If you mm. can't think what to do, just kill them all. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's a very easy kind of way out, don't you think? Mm. Was it? I think was it? It was either Chandler or Hammett who said if. If you get stuck, just have a guy walk into a room with a gun or something yes, like that. Yes. If you're in doubt, bring on a guy with a gun. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, oh, that's fantastic. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time with us today, Renee. It's been absolutely delightful. I could keep talking to you for hours, but we shouldn't uh, We shouldn't give uh, the, the viewers a four-hour podcast or anything like that. But I am curious, like, Blood Matters is fantastic. You're clearly still going from strength to strength as a writer. Can we expect another novel, another crime novel or a play yeah. from you? Are you working yeah. on now and stuff? Yeah. Like, can you tell us I a little? No, yeah. uh, I can't tell you anything about it, but I can tell you the title because that's unusual for me to think of a title quite so early. Oh, okay. That's yeah. going to be called A Message from the Bones. 
Okay, and and will it be another Porahiwi mystery as yeah. well? Oh, yes. it's the same yeah. town as it's a lovely town to visit, folks. As long as you're not the one getting murdered, you <laughs> definitely want to go there. But no, I can highly recommend Blood Matters from the wonderful Renee. Thanks for taking time with us today. I really do appreciate it. Um, check Thank it you out at your local you. library or your bookshop, folks. Uh, we'll put some links on um, Danny Will so you can find out more. And thanks for listening today to the Words of Nerds podcast and uh, Kiwi Craig's World of Crime with the wonderful writing rangatera, Renee. <laughs>